Welcome to the Clunatics Podcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Today, I'm talking to TJ Clune about the landmark year he's had, releasing two books through a major publisher, expanding into young adult writing, and navigating a pandemic that hit right when he was supposed to be touring the country. But before we get to that, I have a few things I'd like to say to all of you who have listened to the podcast since it premiered on March 12, 2020. Cue the Make Johnny Cry music. I set out to create a podcast about the fans of T.J. Klune. I knew there was a treasure trove of stories to be told about how the Clunatics interact with and are inspired by T.J.'s work. But I had no idea that I would learn so much about myself in the course of having these conversations and assembling these episodes, some of which have shaped how I now approach living my life and conducting my work. To every person who agreed to be interviewed for the podcast, thank you. You taught me so much. We've also shared this experience in the middle of a pandemic. Chatting with Clunatics a few times a week for the podcast was my saving grace when I couldn't see my friends. I know that every single one of you was nervous about being interviewed because every single one of you told me you were. But I was always so excited to meet you and chat. You'll never know how much I needed you during those months of isolation. To my fellow podcast producers, thank you. I knew I couldn't do this alone, and I'm so grateful for your hours of work, your ideas and motivation, your humor and heart. I read their names at the end of every episode, but listeners, please make sure to send an overwhelming amount of love and appreciation to Mia, Angela, Susanna, Sita, Louie, and Johnny. They deserve it. Reflecting on all we've accomplished in these five months, I sometimes forget how much was done. We tackled each episode week by week, and even then it sometimes felt overwhelming. Here are just a few statistics to illustrate the enormity of this project. We created 19 episodes, three Just Extra episodes, and a Green Creek short story in audio. The podcast was downloaded over 20,000 times in 64 countries. I conducted 79 interviews with Clunatics from eight different countries. Over 50 hours of audio was recorded and transcribed. We received 41 donations, completely covering our expenses and allowing us to make a $500 donation to The Trevor Project. The podcast producers held 31 weekly meetings. I made six new lifelong friends. And we have one episode left. And here it is. My conversation with author T.J. Klune. You know, when we first talked about doing this podcast, the idea of what 2020 was going to be for you was very different. <laughs> At one point, we talked about having our last conversation where we did our like, Q&A session. We were going to do that together in like New York when we were both at Book Expo, and it was going to be awesome because like, people leave their houses yep. and they see each other in real life. And then... COVID happens. So 
I guess the first thing I just want to know is like, what did you expect this year to be? And then what did it end up being? And ultimately, how do you feel about it? So first, House in the Cerulean Sea was going to came out, it did come out on March 17th. And that was going to be the day of the launch party here in Fredericksburg. And then, then the very next day, I was going to be driving to Charlottesville for the Charlottesville Book Convention. And then right after that, I was going to be jet setting all around the country for multiple, multiple visits. And they were already doing the same for the Extraordinaries, which is going to come out in May. They were already putting that together. So essentially, from March until June, I was not going to be at home. I was going to be all over the place, which I was excited about, but also dreading at the same time because I am a homebody and I don't like going places. <laughs> and then I remember it because it was just, it was, I knew it was coming. But the Thursday before Cerulean came out at six o'clock at night, I got a phone call with the area code from New York City and I knew it was going to be tour. I knew I, they hadn't said anything really, but I knew this call was coming. And when they, they picked up the phone, it was not just my editor and not just my publicist, but it was a big higher up, Lucille. She is a, in upper management there and she's a lovely, lovely person. I adore her. But she called me to tell me, unfortunately, it looks like the tour is going to be canceled because there's this weird... Uh, virus that's starting to gather up steam and we're going to have to watch out for our authors. So not, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't just cancel my tour. They canceled everybody's tour at that point. And anybody that was on tour, they were going to bring home. And at that time it was out of what they called an abundance of caution. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what was going to happen, but it was better to be safe than sorry. And then literally the next, the next, over that weekend is when COVID exploded in the United States. And then the week that Cerulean came out, it was COVID was the only thing on the news because it was, they were finding cases in every state and, and our government didn't seem to be giving a shit about any of it. Nobody knew what was going on. So naturally everybody was going to the store and buying toilet paper and you couldn't get toilet paper for like, two months at any grocery store because that's all anybody was buying for whatever reason. Like I just, it blew my mind that when a deadly pandemic was gaining steam, the first thing that everybody thought of was what's going to happen when I take shit. <laughs> just, I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on with that, but I was bummed. I was obviously bummed. It felt like I'd been, I felt like I'd been working my ass off for two years to get to this point and right when it was about to happen, it felt like it was collapsing out from under me. And I was, I, I kind of panicked because I was like, well, what am I going to do now? What's going to happen is, is nobody going to be focusing on the books because everybody's going to be watching a 24 hour news channel trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And so they decided to convert the tour over to digital dates. And I, I ended up doing a lot of, since it was such short notice, a lot of, a lot of bookstores weren't equipped to do Zoom. Hell, I never even knew Zoom was a thing <laughs> until the <laughs> pandemic hit. I didn't know that Zoom was a thing at all. And bookstores weren't able to do digital events because they'd never had to do digital events before. So 
a lot of the dates I had to do were canceled. So I kind of had to make up for it by doing Instagram lives, which is something that I've never had to do before. And it was weird me sitting in my kitchen where I'm essentially sitting right now, talking to myself on a screen on my phone with like hundreds of people watching me and me fumbling through it awkwardly. Cause again, I've never done anything like that. Now I'm a fucking pro because I've had to do this dozens of time over the last four months. But back then, back in March, it was, I can't believe it's only been four months back in March. It was, it was all new and weird and scary. And I was trying to put on a happy face while everybody was freaking out about what was going on in the world. And I was like, here, I know everything is sad and scary and we don't know what's going to happen, but can you read my book, please? It's, it's a good book, I swear. And I don't know, I, I think we had to fumble through it. And looking back on it now, because I think this is going to be our future from this point on for God knows how long. I, I mean, we're not going to, they're not going to send me on tour probably in March of next year when my next book comes out. I doubt I'll be do, doing any tour then. And, and then Extraordinaries 2 comes out next summer. I probably won't be doing any tours then. So it's basically reshaped how we as an industry have to function. And everybody was basically put onto a level playing field because nobody expected this to come and everybody had to scramble to figure out how to make things work. So an industry as big as publishing did not falter or die. Was there any part of you that was a little bit jealous of those authors who had books come out in January? And still got to do their tours? Yes. Oh, definitely, yes. Okay, digital events are wonderful in that they are accessible to anybody in the entire world. Like, I, I can do an event and anybody can watch from wherever they are. When you do in-person events, it's only going to be the people that show up at the store that you get to talk to. So in that regard, it's amazing because people who might not get to have access to hear you talk get to because of the power of the internet. But there's something that I was looking forward to about an almost intimate setting where I get to talk to people face to face and to see their reactions to my words and, and to actually get to talk to them one-on-one -on -one afterwards that I was looking forward to. Like at the beginning of this year or hell, even into like maybe October, November of last year, I was terrified of public speaking. I have been my whole life. It's one of my biggest fears but then that got knocked right out of me when in January I, I went to Philadelphia and had to give a presentation in front of like 150 librarians. And if I can do that, then I can do anything. And so I was really actually looking forward to pushing myself as hard as I could possibly get or to be in speaking in front of people. And I was actually getting very excited about it. And then God was like, well, guess what, TJ? I hate homosexuals. And bam! COVID. And now here we are. And four months later, and at least I can buy toilet papers from the store now. Yeah. Well, and it, it must be said, I know that you are a self-proclaimed introvert and homebody, but I have seen you interact with your fans enough times to know that you are also very good at it. And so it is it, 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 hey, getting to spend like two minutes one-on-one -on -one with a human being. You're very good at that. I, I try to be, I have to, I have to push myself. To do that. It, it is me stepping outside of my comfort zone, but I've interacted more with readers in the past six months than I have in my entire career. 
And obviously that's, that's one part of being signed with, with a major publisher is they want you to be the face of your books, which I was not okay with at the beginning. And, but they dragged me kicking and screaming by my hair into this. And now here I am. And, and I'm actually pretty comfortable with doing stuff like this now. It's gonna. It's actually probably gonna be weird if we ever do get to go back to normal and I get to talk to people face to face because I'm so used to seeing everybody on a damn computer screen now. Like just last week, I did an event for my Spanish language publisher for the Green Creek series, and it was I was a su- the surprise last guest on it. We didn't. They didn't publicize it beforehand, and I didn't announce anything until right when I was about to go on. And right when they announced my name, all of a sudden we were on Zoom and all of a sudden 300 screens kept popping up with people shrieking. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) what is happening? I'm sorry, I don't speak your language. What are you saying to me? And it was, but it was so freaking, it was humbling, man. It was, I, look, I get, I get a lot of people have read my books and that's cool. That's awesome. Thank you. I love that more than anything. But to see that reaction from a group of readers who I've never gotten to talk to before was just, I got, I was, I was near tears at that point because I was, I was having a shitty week last week. And then, and to be able to get that and hear that from people made me remember why all of this is so, so worth it. Yeah. Well, so you're clearly very famous in that circle and I don't know how much, (laughs) I don't know how much you even know like how quickly like numbers come in, but like, how are the books doing? Like, are you super famous now? I don't know how to gauge that answer. The books have done very well. Obviously they've both become bestsellers. The Cerulean went on the USA Today bestseller list, which was stupid. It it was, and keep in mind when I say stupid, that's because I don't really have any other language to say how, how flabbergasted I am by that. But the books have done, particularly the house in the Cerulean Sea has done very well. And the, and the reason is, look, when the first, we, what happens when, when, when a book comes out in traditional publishing, they will let me know how the first week sales were on the Wednesday following. A book comes out on a Tuesday and then eight days later on the Wednesday, they'll tell me how the book is doing. So Cerulean came out right at when the pandemic was kicking into gear. And they sent me the numbers and this bear with me on this because it's going to sound like I'm ungrateful, but the numbers weren't what I had hoped they were. They, it basically sold a bit better than the first week of heart song, which is an established series that has a lot of fans and had been delayed and anticipated. And it was going to be a big book when it came out and it was, but Cerulean sold just a bit more than that. And I remember thinking, huh, why did I sign with a major publisher and do all of this work when I self-published a book and did just as well myself? And that made me sound so not like me. That was, that was a very weird, angry, jealous, stupid thought. And I felt gross after I thought that. And I, I wished I hadn't, but I'm, I'm fucking human. It's it, these things, you, you think things and sometimes you say them out loud and sometimes you don't, but that's just a thought that I had. Why did I, why did I do this if it was just going to sell as well as my previous book, which don't get me wrong, is very good. I'm glad it sold as well as my previous book, but this was supposed to be my breakout. 
hell, it's in the blurb, breakout fantasy. It was supposed to be bigger than everything that came before, and it didn't feel like that. But then the second week happened, and it sold the same amount. And then the third week happened, and it wasn't leveling off. And then I, on, on Instagram, the book started to get picked up by a lot of bookstagrammers. And if you don't know bookstagram, you, you have to understand just how influential that community is. When the bookstagram community finds a book that they like, they latch onto it and they will promote the hell out of it. And anybody that follows my Instagram stories sees just how many pictures I, I, I repost of the, the bookstagram community's arc of my books. And it's just, it confounds me just how perfect each of these pictures are. They, they have all these props, all these details, the lighting is just right. They have, all these extra filters that you have to download and do all of this stuff. And it's basically, they can, they, they turn that into a job. They make money off of that because once you get a high enough following, you get companies that want to, to promote with you. And then you get publishers wanting to send you early arcs of books and they will basically a book can live and die or die because of the bookstagram community. And I was fortunate that the bookstagram community picked up Cerulean, picked up the extraordinaries as they have. Word of mouth has always been my greatest asset in publishing. That's what happened with my first book. It's what happened with all my books after people reading them and then talking about them. But it happened on a level that I was not prepared for with Cerulean. And in the subsequent weeks and months that followed with Cerulean, the, the numbers didn't fall. It kept, it, if anything, if they, it leveled out, it, it stayed the same or it got bigger. And then to capitalize on the wave of uh, people talking about the book, Tor then did something that was a bit unprecedented, at least in my experience, in that they reduced the price, the ebook price from $13.99 to $2.99 a few months after release for one week. And then everybody that had been hearing about the book on Instagram went and bought it. And that's how I was able to get on the USA Today bestseller list is because the word of mouth of people that liked the book and talked about it. And then in conjunction with Tor capitalizing on that and lowering the price for a limited time, it became an event where everybody was like, we want to be part of the conversation. And I was, I don't know it. It makes me look back at how I felt that gross thought I had after that first week and make me realize what a dick I was right then. <laughs> I was thinking, what the hell is wrong with you? But I've, I've learned at this point now that I, obviously I'm not a perfect person and I'm going to have dumb thoughts every now and then. But how absolutely wrong I was to have that thought because look where I am now, man. I mean – four months later and this both of these books have done things that I was not prepared for and could not have expected. And I don't know the fact that house in this really and see and extraordinaries was able to give people a bit of happiness in this stupidly dark time we find ourselves in is the best response I could have hoped for. And that's what really matters in the end. 
Have you noticed any of the hallmarks of like becoming a truly famous and influential person? Like, do you have people from your childhood coming out to be like, oh, hey, remember how close we are in real life? Right? Yeah, now? I had I had I had friends I haven't talked to in like a decade or more reach out to me saying that they had seen my books in the bookstore and opened it up and saw the back cover because they, they saw the name Clune. They didn't know TJ because my real name is Travis. That's how they know me. But they, they opened up the book and saw my picture on the back cover. And then, of course, on the bottom, it shows my contact info. <laughs> so they were like, hey, I saw your, like one wrote and said, hey, I saw your book at the bookstore. That's really cool. I didn't buy it because it's not, it didn't sound like a book I would like. But I just wanted to let you know I saw it. And I was like, oh, thank you, person I was in eighth grade with <laughs> back in the 90s. <laughs> what the hell? But it's been... It's been weird. I've heard from former coworkers from my previous job at, at Geico randomly reaching out to me saying, hey, we're, my kid and I are reading this book together. I just wanted to say to tell you that. I was like, oh, okay, cool. It's been unlike anything I've ever experienced before, and it, it defied all my expectations. And even if this is the biggest my books ever get, I will look back on this with the gratitude of knowing that at least I made a mark for a little while. And that's something that a lot of people never get to do. So if, if this is the last time I ever get to see my book on a bestseller list, then you know what? That's okay because I did it once and, and nobody can take that away from me. Well, I highly doubt that will be the case, but I think that's a very healthy attitude to have. So good for it you. is because you don't, you don't want to, I think at the very beginning before Cerulean came out, I think I was, I was having difficulty managing my expectations and that was a me problem. And, and I figured out how to, to turn that around and, and make my expectations work for me and not be, allow myself to be disappointed if something doesn't work out the way I hoped it would. Because again, how many people get to say they get to be in this position? Not many, man. I, I, yeah, I worked my butt off for close to 10 years to get to where I am today, but it didn't have to happen this way. Tor didn't have to publish the book. Uh, they didn't have to sign me for six books total. I didn't have to have the the support that I've had. I, I'm very, very lucky. And I remember that and I'll know that. I will always cherish that fact. So uh, Now, if instant fame and fortune can often be very difficult for family members. So how is Hendrix coping with all of this? My God, he is a diva now. He expects, I, I went and bought him this stupid $300 anti-anxiety bed just because he's an anxious dog. And that bed is, is I would lay on it. Because <laughs> it's so <laughs> like, I got, if I get anxious, I want to lay on it. But it is, it, he refuses because he has, he's such a weird dog. He has three beds. He has one in my room one in the next to my desk where I work and then one in my great room by the fireplace. And he refused after I got him the, the, the expensive anti-anxiety bed, he refuses to lay on his other two. So what is a parent to do? I had to buy two more. <laughs> and so now he has $900 worth of anti-anxiety beds off of my house. Oh my he's a fucking diva. Yeah. It's my child, man. It's my child. I have to tell you something too. So he goes to this daycare, right? And they are, it's just, I, I, I want him to be able to go because again, he has 
anxiety and he has some separation anxiety, which is totally par for the course because that's who I am. But they, they, they basically treat the dogs there like children. And just yesterday I went to go, or on Wednesday, yeah, yeah, Wednesday, I went to go pick him up and they brought me artwork that he had done where they had put paw, their paws in paint and put them on the ends of, of drawings of a, a potted plant so it looks like he has flowers. And I got this and I was literally looking down at this and I thought, oh my God, my son is so talented. <laughs> so it's pretty much my life now. <laughs> I have it hanging on my refrigerator. I'm looking at it right now. It is delightful. Have you guys discussed maybe him becoming an influencer? Like, is he going to be like a dogstagram model? Oh my God, no. You, look, I, if there's one thing I've learned through this whole, through the last six months is how much I still don't like social media <laughs> that much. Like before I did, I think we talked about this before, before I was published, I didn't have anything. I didn't have any kind of social media. So there's something about, especially when you're promoting books and having to be, there's something about always being online that is just freaking exhausting. And I have to remember, oh, I have to do this post today. Oh, I have to do this Instagram thing today. Oh, I have to remember to post this on Facebook. And so there's going to be no dogstagram because I can barely keep, keep up with my own social media and I'm tired. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to your job that is more than writing. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of people don't get that. I think that's important for people to understand. Writing, that's the easy part. That's the part I can do without, without thinking. I can do that without a second thought. I can, I can freaking crank out a book. If I'm into that story, man, I can crank out a book like no other. But then it comes to the, all the other stuff. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I have to do stuff for it. And it wasn't like what it was with my former publisher for good reason. It's obviously why they are the way they are. And we'll just leave it at that. But there is so much work that goes into a book because a book, a publisher sees it as an investment. They are buying this intellectual property and they expect you to do the work to get the book out there. And, and I'm more than willing and more than capable to do that work. But it it can be it can be a lot, especially when you do two books in three months. Yeah. Since you brought up social media, I'm curious, you know, when we talked way back in January and February for the first interviews we did for the podcast, I wondered if like your online persona would have to change at all because of your your changing and growing audience. And you thought, nah. Do you still think that? Yeah. Because if if I try to change myself to adapt to an audience, what I think an, a, a new audience would like. That would feel just so disingenuous as to who I am. What you see from me online is pretty much who I am in real life. I'm maybe not as talkative or, or quippy at all points in my life, but that I don't have a online TJ persona and an offline Travis persona. That's just not how I am. I think that's, I think that's a bit two faced and I'm not trying to call anybody out for that. It's just not, it's just not how it works for me. So even though my readership has grown and maybe the age has changed for a lot of my readership, I think that they, I would hope that say if, there are 14, 15 year olds who follow me. I would hope that their parents would 
I hope that some parents are looking at what I looking at my social media feed so they can decide if that's what they want their kids to do. But then I remember how I was at 16 and if my parents tried to tell me what I could and couldn't do, then that was even more reason for me to do it. So there are times when I, I do caution myself from posting certain things like, but it's basically just coming down to, to language for the most part. But then I realized, you know what, who the fuck cares? And I will, my favorite word in the world is literally fuck. And I, if I need to say that, then I'll say it. And if somebody gets upset by it, they can feel free to unfollow. That's just how it is. Speaking of new audiences, you are a YA author now. <laughs> Have you noticed any change in like the people who are reaching out to you? Are you hearing from? Oh yeah. Well, even, even with Cerulean before, before Extraordinaries came out, it was with Cerulean was showing up as, as I was getting, look, before Cerulean, I heard from parents every now and then who'd read like how to be a normal person and and olive juice and I've heard even heard from parents who who listened with their older kids to Tales from Verania and they had listened first and then they had let their kids because you know I I think that's fine if you if you think that that your kid is capable of handling that kind of um, story, then you know the better than I do. And, and I don't have a problem with that. My, my issue has always stemmed from not even like take Verania, for example, with the sex jokes that they have. My issue has never been with that. My issue has always been underage readers reading the act of sex itself, sex scenes that, that does make me a bit uncomfortable. It makes me a bit uncomfortable when my Spanish language publisher positions Wolf Song as YA, because that's not YA. It is an adult book with adult characters. They start as young adults, but then they grow up to adults and they do very adult things. And that, that kind of makes me uncomfortable. But who I was at 16 in 1998 is not how 16-year-olds are now in 2020, for better or worse. I, I, if that's good or bad, I, I can't be the judge of that because I'm not, I'm not going to try to understand how people should parent their children. But kids these days, oh God, that makes me feel so old. Kids these days, they, they are much savvier than I ever was. And they have, they have access to so much more information than I ever could. And I thought about it just a little while ago, actually, because I was talking with my editor about sex in YA because the extraordinaries does not have sex scenes. It has very frank discussions about sex, but it does not have sex scenes. Extraordinaries two pushes that envelope a little bit further. Things get a little bit more heated in book two. There's no actual penetrative sex in that book, but I am considering that potentially for book three. And it, I'm of two minds of that. Uh, one, it kind of it makes me feel weird to be writing underage characters engaging in sex. That I I'm very very uncomfortable with that. It would never be as explicit as my adult books are. But at the same time, YA has pushed the envelope for a lot of things, and especially when it comes to diversity. And I think that we're starting to see more and more, <clears throat> I don't I didn't even want to say sexually explicit, but we're starting to see more X and YA. That's just how it is. And I got to thinking, 
There is no real curriculum in schools for queer sex education. There is none. Across the country, there is sex ed, but I would, guess, I would probably guess that 99% of those do not include queer sex ed course. And that bugs the shit out of me because when kids are trying to figure out who they are and how things work, what are they going to do? They're going to look online. And what's that most likely going to lead to? Porn. And porn, while not for me, it's obviously is a, a thing that is, is out there for people to look at. It's fantasy. It's not reality. And I worry that kids might start thinking that, or that's where they're getting their sexual education from. And that's not fair. That's not fair to the queer kid sitting in class surrounded by his straight classroom people, friends, students, whatever. And, and, having to sit through a straight sex ed class and thinking, but this is not how I am. This is not how I am. What, what, what's it like for two women? How do two women go together? How do two men go together? I'm non-binary. I'm trans. How, how, how does this fit in for me? And it bums me out to think that there might be kids out there who don't understand how their sexual being could act and how they should be acting. So I'm wrestling with it, but I, I wish that, that we could have more frank discussions with, with, with teenagers about what it means to be sexually active in the queer community. And, you know, even if it's just a couple of kids in one class, they still need that. They still deserve to have that. And I just don't, I, I think we're failing them in that. You know, sorry to interrupt, but I think it's also important for the people who aren't gay to hear that as well. You know, there needs to be a larger understanding that like your sexuality is not the default. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you have to sit through a little bit of something that also doesn't apply to you. Like, well, mm-hmm. welcome to our world. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's how our world is. That's how our world has yeah. been. I think that fosters understanding and growth. If in, mm-hmm. in a school setting, it's just acknowledged and talked about and normalized and... Look, and you're always going to have the parents that don't want their kids to be subjected to that, to talk about sex, to hear about sex, to even know that sex exists. But let's be frank. When you're 16, you are driven by hormones, man. You are, all your mind is thinking about, especially if you're a guy, it doesn't matter if you're straight or gay, bisexual, pan, somewhere in between. If you're a dude, you're thinking about sex. That is, is something that, that they could be taught about they could say here's how you do this here's how you do it safely here's how you do it to protect yourself here's how you do it to protect your partner here's what prep is here is what you need to look out for here are diseases you can get from having gay sex sex with a a partner rules of consent exactly exactly because if you're not teaching kids these boundaries they're going to have to learn it from somewhere else. And they may go down a road that is not a safe road to go down. And I, I would think that if, if I was a parent, I won't speak for other parents because obviously I'm, I don't have kids, but I would think that if I was a parent and I had a teenager, I would want them to know how to be safe. 
And that would be the most important thing. It's an awkward conversation, but you know what? Like they, like Aaron Bell did with, with Nick in The Extraordinaries, he fucking used a banana to show him how to put on a condom. And it was an awkward scene, but it's important that, that a 16-year-old boy knows how to do that. It's important that they know how to, to do something like that, whether they're straight or gay. They need to know what protection is and how to use that protection. And I think that we have such a, such a, still a weird taboo about discussing sex openly and honestly that we're, our society, for whatever reason, America, we're, we're such prudes when it comes to talking about sex openly and honestly. And I don't understand why it benefits more than it hurts to have these honest discussions with people who need to hear this is how you protect yourself this is how you protect your partner this is what consent is if no if someone says no that means stop that means stop and we we still don't do that it's 2020 and we still don't do that yeah if i can share my opinion my perspective as mm-hmm. a queer youth i mean i think at the age of 16 i was still figuring out what gay even was mm-hmm. I mean, and that's 20 years ago. That, that gay wasn't even really a part of the culture to know that like, oh, same-sex attraction means I'm gay. I thought it was just part of puberty. Right. You know? So I think to have that in a book, not, not in an explicit way, but to have sex explained in a book in a caring and, yeah, not porny way. Right. Would have been because look, so there's valuable. nothing, and there's nothing wrong with erotica. There's nothing wrong with titillation. There's nothing wrong with porn. But I, I have never, as you know, I've never been about that side of of writing because it's not, it doesn't interest me. But you're absolutely correct in in that if it's shown in a way that is meant to educate versus titillate, but not be, not look like you're being very clinical about it then yeah, I think it's going to be okay. You just have to learn how to walk that fine line because I mean, Jesus Christ, I've had, I've had men email me dick pics saying, this is what I got after reading your book. This, this, this sex scene made me hard. And I'm just like, I I just gross myself out. (laughs) I just got shivers remembering all that crap. But I, I don't want that to ever, ever be the case in in a YA that should never be the case in the YA if there is a sex scene in a YA book to me and again this is just my opinion it should be there a in service of the story because it's a natural part of the story and b to be able to show what how scary how terrifying your first time is because i remember my first time and it was not good. It was not good because it was scary as hell. I was nervous. I, I felt like I was screwing up. I had no, we had no idea what we were doing at all. And it's, it, it, you know, people are like, Oh, you look back on your first time fondly. What are you kidding me? (laughs) It was gross. That is not the experience of any gay man. I know. Right. It is gross because you have no idea what you're doing. You don't know. You don't know about things like douching. You don't know about things like, like, like how much lube you need to use. You don't know about prepping your partner and stuff like that. And it gets gross and people don't really seem to understand that. And so if 
there is going to be sex in any book that I write that is geared towards a younger audience. It is going to be there with the sole purpose of education rather than titillation. And that is how it should be. Well, I look forward to seeing how that plays out. That was a, yeah, oh that was a really fascinating aside. I didn't expect to be yeah, talking about that, but I'm glad that. I did. So to just move on to something else, totally different. Uh, Love Song Part 2, what the fuck was that? <laughs> yeah, you didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it before I posted it. I didn't even, I didn't even send it to, to Lynn or Mia to have them read it. I was, how do I say this? So in Brother Song, no spoilers, there is a scene that, that to me needed to be expanded upon. But given the, the, who the perspective is, given that it's coming from Carter's point of view, it could not have been. And that's all I can say on that. So that about Brother Song. Love Song Part 2 was born from that scene. And I, I've been thinking about it more and more over the last few weeks as we're heading towards Brother Song in October. And I've been thinking about it more and more. And I just couldn't get this idea out of my head that I, there was more to it and I wanted to write another part to it. And then I was randomly on Spotify and I was just listening to music and this one song came on and it's connected yours forever. And the first line is the moment you were born. And I was like, shit, now I have to write this stupid other story that I didn't know I was going to have to do. I don't have time for this. I don't want to do this. Maybe I should just sit down and see what happens. And then literally I wrote that in the space of a day, a few hours. And while listening to that song over and over and over and over again, and I was like, ah, maybe I should save this for an extra later on down the road. I'm trying to focus on the extraordinaries and, and trying to do all that. But then I was like, you know what? Everybody has given me so much <clears throat> in the last few months with, with the, the support coming from for Cerulean and extraordinaries. And it just felt like a little way for me to give a, a gift back. I can't do much but I can write. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put this out there as a surprise for everyone without teasing it, without anybody letting us know it's coming. And I did. And literally I checked the analytics that night on my website and like 10,000 people had read that story or 10,000 people at least clicked on it. And I just, I just love them. I just love y'all. <laughs> I just love, I love that. And it's love song part two was me wanting to tell another little bit clinging on to the green Creek universe, I think, but it was also a way just to say thank you for letting me do what I do and loving my books as much as I do. Well, and also as me get a tease brother song even more. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it was good. It was good. Uh, yeah, it was good, but also what the fuck, man? Well, let's talk I about you then. You fucking turned around and recorded it the same day and published it the same day. You're a freaking machine, man. You are very, very good at what you do. It was a 23-minute short story. It didn't take that much. Yeah, but you literally, I literally posted it, and within like two hours, you had already uploaded it to the podcast feed. You are a tremendous person, and I am grateful that you are part of my writing journey. Well, thank you. I'm... Uh, proud to be a part of your writing journey as well. Right. It is somewhat out of selfishness that I do that because I don't want anybody else to think they're going to do it before I. Yeah, get it. right. <laughs> I don't want I don't want some fan out there to be like, oh, maybe this should be an audio. I'll record it. No, I do it. 
I record. <laughs> you have as much ownership over the characters as I do. So I completely agree. It's me. I get yeah. to. Absolutely. <laughs> so some eagle-eyed fans clocked the notebook that you shared. You had some a note that said Western, which was not, I, I did not think it was legible, but other people clocked it. Yeah, um, right. It, they did. I didn't even, I wasn't even thinking about that when I posted that picture. It had like E-R-N. Yeah, was like, how can you read that? Yeah. Well, I think they probably got it because it said 1880s on the top. Uh, above that. But I honestly, honest to God, was not even thinking about that when I post that because I was I was just so happy to find that little note about Cerulean and and you know, post that on there to just say, hey, this is where it began and look where it is now. And the note above it with the the human android asexual that is in the lives of puppets, which mm-hmm. comes out from Tor in 2022. So I wasn't even thinking about the Western thing. So, of course, people naturally glommed on to that because that's what they do. So it was um, not an intentional tease. No, uh-uh. It's just something you do naturally and by Right. <laughs> it looks like I tease when I don't even mean to tease. It's just so stupid. That- <laughs> right, it is. Yes, there. So I had an idea, and I think I even talked to you about it years, years ago, a few if, years if we're ago. We're allowed least. to say yes, you yeah. do. Yeah, I, about doing a Western of a certain type of story. Because I've already written a book that can technically be considered a Western, which is the Immemorial Year series, which is a post-apocalyptic. And it's basically a Western in that it's about a lone gunslinger kind of a man who has to save a town from blah, blah, blah. But I, I love, love, love Westerns. I love Westerns. I love Western movies. I love Western books. That's why in, in Bones Beneath My Skin, Louis L'Amour is, is prevalent throughout that book because I just, I love, I grew up reading all of those books. And I had this idea to do a Western and, and I wanted to, to make it as cliched as absolutely possible. And, and then that Netflix show came out with, God, I can't even remember the name of it, with Jeff Bridges, where it was basically, I won't say completely what I was going for, but it, it would have been too similar. So I kind of just like shelved it and I said, eh, I can't do anything with this now. And I loved that show. I, I've watched it twice through. But it happens. Like Sometimes that happens. You have an idea and somebody got there first and that's totally fine. But I... Still can't shake the idea of wanting to do a Western. So I'm going to, and that is where, that is where the next Wolf series is going to come. After Brother Song, I'm going to take a break from Werewolves for a while. But I do, I've already have plot written out. I already have, it's going to be another four book series. I already know the ending of the third book. That's going to make so many people angry and it's wonderful, but I, I'm going to write a Western werewolf queer romance and have it do four book series, basically covering how the green, how green Creek became to be so powerful and exploring an earlier version of the Bennett pack, except it's not going to be about the Bennett's. It's going to be about a, a different group of wolves who come into contact with the Bennett's. 
And you will get hints of what that might be in Brother Song. And that's all I'll say on that. That is so cool. And yet another thing to look forward to. Mm -hmm. And uh, at this moment in the podcast, people are screaming. People at home are just yelling. Absolutely will, because not only am I teasing a new series, I'm also still teasing Brother Song, double teasing. Mm-hmm. So understanding that like, sometimes there are just things that you can't talk about that are in development, but you know, how have you changed since March 17th? And like, have your goals and aspirations for yourself been altered at all since uh, you've gone on this publishing journey? No, and that's, that's I think that's a good thing because... <clears throat> I signed with Tor for three adult books and three young adult books. I'd already written five of those before Cerulean came out. And the last one that's waiting for me to write is going to be Extraordinaries 3. But I don't feel any different than, than I was earlier this year because I still get to do what I love the most. And that's just write the stories I want to write. I'm... A, I'm Things are a bit more regimented now because with with like a series before, I could just write whatever the hell I want. This is I wanted to write if I wanted to write Tales from Brady of those last three books back to back to back and then submit them all pretty much at the same time, I could do that. It's not how it works now. Like I won't write Extraordinaries three until we start the first round of edits for Extraordinaries 2 to make sure that they don't want me to change anything because I don't want to have to change something in Extraordinaries 2 and change it in Extraordinaries 3. So I, I have to wait, which is fine. I have a billion, obviously a billion other things that I want to write. Jesus, I've written, I wrote two books over the last four months and I obviously have a lot on my plate, so I don't need to worry about that. But Nothing really has changed. I still get to do what I do. I still get to be me and I still get to tell the stories that I want to tell. And if, if a publisher doesn't want that, you know what? I can still turn around and I have an established reader base that I can self-publish a book if I want to self-publish a book, which is what I, what I plan on doing. I plan on doing my two books a year with Tor. And each after that, I, I want to do at least one self-pubbed book with either it be with a series that it already is mine, like the Tales from Verania books, or something new entirely. And I have that notebook that I posted the picture from that that people glommed onto the Western thing for. That is that is just one page. That that is literally filled with pages and pages and pages and pages of story ideas that I just haven't gotten to yet. So I will not stop until I guess I'm dead. <laughs> and that's that's not going to be for a long, long time. So I've got I've got plenty of work ahead of me, and I'm I'm still raring to go. Like honestly, I I would have thought back in 2016 when I quit my job to write full time that I was going to get bored. I honestly worried about that that I was going to get bored. That I was going to run out of stuff to do. That I was going to run out of stories to write. But it's only gotten worse, man. Like I now that I have now that these past four years have shown me what I can do. I have so many freaking things that I want to write and get to. And, and it's, there's not enough time in the day for all I want to do. Like if this year I'm releasing three books and I'm tired, but if, if, if I thought I could do it, I could probably put out more next year. I'm putting out four books and I am exhausted just thinking about it. But if I didn't put out these books 
they would just be sitting piling up and up and up and up and I would have a backlog of unpublished books that I haven't written out. I mean, Jesus Christ, there's, there's probably, what can I talk about? There are probably eight things that I've written, eight full length novels that have not been published yet. And you can't publish all eight <laughs> in a year. That's, I can't do that. So it's going to have to be regimented three, four books a year. And even that people are still like, Jesus Christ, how do you do four books a year? I don't know. I don't know how I do that, but I do. And I will say though, with the amount of, of how online I've had to have been over the last six months, I am so sick of myself <laughs> hearing myself talk, hearing myself online. Like I am so, I am so like, Jesus, how are people still able to look at my profiles and see, oh, Jesus, TJ is tweeting again. What the hell? And I just, I, after Brother Song comes out, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take, take a nice long break and I'm going to take a break from the internet. And then Tor is like, in September, we're going to start ramping up the Under the Whispering Door for 2021. And I was like, oh my God. Damn it. <laughs> they're, already, they're already making plans. And I'm just like, I'm, and listen, it may sound like I'm complaining. I'm really not. I am, I am so lucky to be where I am. I am so very lucky. There are people who all over the world every day try to follow their dreams and they, for whatever reason, they don't get that far. I don't know why, I don't know how, but I've gotten to the point where I am and I am the luckiest son of a bitch in the world. And you know why people aren't sick of you yet? It's because you're incredibly talented and you keep putting out work that people love. And as much as you are a dick, you're also not a dick. So people are- Yeah, and that's, that's good. And, and the people, the people that, um, my, my dickish moments, people are understanding of that. And oh they God, seem they to like that. It. And I know, and it's weird. It's like you're freaking it. masochist over here. And it's, it's, I guess I'm just the daddy dom. Oh God. <laughs> no, I take it back. I take it back. Gross. Nope. nope. It's, it's, it is recorded for posterity. And <laughs> it's my new ringtone. It's already my oh, new ringtone. God. Daddy dom, daddy dom. <laughs> well, TJ, thank you for letting us do this because this was, well, it turned into a really ambitious project, this podcast, yes. and it could not have been done without your support and approval and the fact that you allow your readers and fans to create their own content, their own work based on what you do is so generous and not everybody does that. So on behalf of everybody who gets to enjoy your work and then create their own, thank you. Well, let me just say this. Fan work is one of the most important things to me. Over the last few weeks in talking about the extraordinaries and talking about fandom and fan fiction and all of that, the thing I've always wanted to stress the most is that there is no wrong way to go about your writing. If you want to just, if you want to get your start in fan fiction and fandom, do that. If you want to try writing a book from the very beginning, do that. You are doing it. There's no clear path. There's no, there's no set of rules that you have to follow. Just do what you want to do, and with a little luck, you could get to be where I am, or you could get even bigger. You could be the next J.K. Rowling, because we need another J.K. Rowling who is not J.K. Rowling. So the fandom and the fans who have 
who have supported me this long are e either if they've been with me since the beginning or they've just come this year are the best thing that has ever happened to me. And I would not be where I am without them and without any of you. So whatever happens next, wherever I go, whatever I do, whatever happens with my books, I will never ever forget where I started and where I came from and the people who have been there and, and the people who love my books as much as I do, because without them, there'd be no me. And I love each and every one of them. The Clunatics Podcast is produced by Susanna Frigo, Louis Garcia, Angela Noel Moan, Sita Rajasingham, Mia Skiberis, John Steiger, and me. Special thanks to our season sponsor, Chelsea Verzweivelt. We may be done with this season, but don't unsubscribe yet. More audio entertainment is already in the works. Stay tuned. Make sure you're following the Clunatics Podcast on social media. Join our Facebook group and find us on Instagram and Twitter using at ClunaticsPod. All episodes are also available on YouTube. If you want to support the podcast with a financial contribution, hit the donate button at ClunaticsPodcast.com. And please include the name of a charity you think needs our support when you donate. Additional information about the podcast, including episode transcripts and the Clune Speak Don't Be a Dictionary, is available at ClunaticsPodcast.com. You can find out more about me and my work at kurtreads.com. That's K-I-R-T-R-E-A-D-S dot com. All music and sound effects heard in this episode are licensed by Storyblocks Audio. He's got a podcast about him? What's this? There's a fan group? Cool.